welcome to another episode of the Apunk Podcast. I'm the show's host and creator, Morgan Bechtel, and today we'll be discussing peripartum and postpartum mood disorders. One in eight pregnant people experience some form of postpartum mood disorder, but many are hesitant to discuss their symptoms for fear of being viewed as a bad parent. Now, today we'll discuss the pathophysiology, common symptoms, complications, diagnosis, and available treatment options for peripartum and postpartum mood disorders. It's my belief that by explaining these conditions and increasing awareness of their presence, we can finally end the stigma that surrounds these disorders. So listen close as we dive into the details of peripartum and postpartum mood disorders. Let's first start by defining what postpartum and peripartum means. Now, the postpartum period refers to the first 12 months after birth, and peripartum means that the onset occurred during pregnancy or within the first four weeks after delivery. As mentioned in the intro, approximately 13% of women, or one in eight pregnancies, experiences postpartum depression. Postpartum depression is also considered to be the underlying cause of roughly 9% of pregnancy-related deaths. There are several risk factors that increases an individual's risk of developing postpartum mood disorders, and these include things like being younger than 19 during pregnancy, identifying as American Indian or Alaskan Native, smoking during or after pregnancy, having experienced intimate partner violence before or during pregnancy, being diagnosed with major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder before or during pregnancy, or having experienced neonatal or infant loss. When people hear the term postpartum depression, they often mistakenly think that this is referring to the baby blues, but these are in fact two separate conditions with very important distinctions between them. The blues is a result of rapid hormonal changes, high stress from birth, lifestyle adjustments, and increased responsibility. Symptoms can include things like moodiness, crying, sadness, worry, lack of concentration, and forgetfulness. The baby blues typically develop within two to three days of delivery, and they peak over the next few days and resolve within two weeks of onset. Now, postpartum depression can be distinguished from baby blues in several ways. The most important being that the symptoms last longer than two weeks, and the depressive symptoms can be much more severe. Symptoms of postpartum depression include things like dysphoria or anhedonia, that feeling that You're not getting joy or enjoyment out of the things that you normally would. Other symptoms include worthlessness or excessive guilt, impaired concentration and decision-making, maybe even discomfort around the baby or lack of feeling towards the baby, and yes, sometimes even suicidal ideation and behavior. It's important to note that somatic symptoms of major depression, like changes in sleep, energy level, and appetite often overlap with the normal changes that are observed in postpartum women who are not depressed. Now, one of the more serious symptoms of postpartum depression can be rumination about harming the baby, but this is more associated with postpartum psychosis, and we'll talk more about this later. It's important to note that the thoughts of harming the baby are generally experienced as unwanted, unacceptable, and intrusive, and they're usually not revealed unless the patient are directly questioned about it. As mentioned before, patients are often reluctant to discuss their depressive symptoms for a variety of reasons, one of which is this perceived social expectation that new mothers or new parents are happy and overjoyed with the birth of their child. And this can result in feelings of embarrassment and guilt and stigma when that parent doesn't necessarily feel what they think or are expected to feel. 
In addition, some parents feel that their babies will be taken away from them by child welfare agencies if they're not perceived as being the quote-unquote perfect parent. It's important to screen all new parents for postpartum depression in the weeks and months after birth. Screening is often done via the 10-item Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. Women may not be open to sharing these feelings, so it's really important to ask open-ended questions that address the patient's physical, mental, and emotional well-being. If a diagnosis of postpartum mood disorder is suspected, it's important to get a full psychiatric history, meaning previous diagnoses, medications that are tried, family history, as well as labs to rule out any other causes of depression, like thyroid abnormalities. When diagnosing postpartum depression, a patient must meet the same diagnostic criteria as a major depressive disorder, meaning that five or more of the following symptoms have to be present during the same two-week period and represent a change from previous functioning. And one of the five symptoms has to include either depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. Now, the symptoms of major depressive disorder as a refresher include depressed mood for most of the day, nearly every day, as indicated by a subjective report. So, you know, the patient says, I feel sad or empty or hopeless. Or there have been observations made by others that might suggest that the patient has been depressed, like they appear tearful. Other symptoms include that the patient has markedly diminished interest or pleasure in doing all or almost all activities. Again, that's that anhedonia. Significant weight loss when not eating or significant weight gain Increased appetite can be a symptom. Insomnia or hypersomnia, sleeping too much or too little. Sometimes psychomotor agitation or retardation can occur. And that's, again, can be observed by others, not merely a subjective feeling of restlessness or being really slowed down. Having fatigue or loss of energy can be a symptom. Feeling worthless or having this excessive or inappropriate sense of guilt. And again, this is not merely just a sense of self-reproach or, you know, guilt about feeling sick, but just overall guilt. Other symptoms include diminished ability to think, concentrate, or indecisiveness. And more seriously, recurrent thoughts of death, not just fear of dying or those thoughts of, you know, oh, I'm driving my car. What if I just, boop, went off the road? These recurrent suicidal ideations without any sort of specific plan or sometimes suicide attempts with specific plans for committing suicide. Now, these symptoms should cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. In order to have a diagnosis of major depressive disorder or postpartum peripartum depression, the episode can't be attributed to other physiological causes or from a substance use. This diagnosis can also be made so long as the symptoms can't be explained by other mental disorders like schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, schizophreniform disorder, delusional disorder, or other psychiatric disorders. So now that we have talked about screening, talked about symptoms, we talked about diagnosis, let's talk about the treatment of perinatal and postpartum mood disorders. So untreated postpartum depression can resolve spontaneously, but it's really important to note that untreated postpartum depression impairs maternal functioning, and it's associated with poor nutritional and health outcomes for the children or offspring involved. It can interfere with breastfeeding, it can interfere with maternal infant bonding, and can have a big impact on the care of the infant and the other children, as well as the relationship between parents or other caregivers. It's also important to note that patients who recover from episodes of postpartum depression are at high risk for recurrences, occurs in approximately 40 to 50% of cases. Now, the first-line treatment for mild to moderate postpartum mood disorders generally is therapy, either cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal psychotherapy. 
While therapy itself is important, it's really important to find a therapist who has experience with postpartum mood disorders, who will really be able to connect with this patient on a, you know, the sensitive issue. Many patients have hesitations about starting medication due to fears that it might harm their child either during pregnancy or during breastfeeding. Among scientists and specialists, there's a general consensus that the benefits of antidepressants outweigh the potential risks to the infant. The risks are regarded as low. As an example, most SSRIs pass into the breast milk at a dose that is less than 10% of the maternal level and are generally considered compatible with breastfeeding of a healthy full-term infants. For breastfeeding parents, a SSRI or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor like paroxetine or sertraline are first line. And this is because infant serum concentrations are lower than other medications like citalopram, escitalopram, and fluoxetine. However, during pregnancy, paroxetine is generally avoided as an initial treatment for pregnant patients because there have been a couple of observational studies that suggest paroxetine may be associated with a small risk of congenital cardiac anomalies. Now, evidence supporting the use of sertraline, citalopram, or escitalopram during pregnancy include several observational studies that found that first trimester exposure to these drugs was associated with little to no risk of teratogenicity. So during pregnancy, with peripartum nude disorders, we're going to recommend sertraline, citalopram, or escitalopram. However, if SSRIs are not an option, and that could be due to side effects or maybe they were tried and failed in the past, the SNRIs, or serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, which are venlafaxine and desvenlafaxine, appear to be safe in breastfeeding women based on observational studies of exposed infants and the lack of adverse events. If a patient is unresponsible to SSRIs and SNRIs, tricyclic antidepressants, norotriptyline, is usually favored due to its safety record. For breastfeeding women who require benzodiazepines, again, that's patients who are going to have really severe anxiety or agitation, it's generally recommended that we use very low dose of drugs that have a very short half-life and no active metabolites. That's going to include things like lorazepam. Now, clonazepam has no active metabolites, but it may accumulate in infants due to its long half-life, so generally not considered first line, and we generally avoid diazepam for lactating patients. The primary concern of using benzodiazepines in women who are lactating is the withdrawal and excess sedation in infants. So again, we try to avoid them if possible. Now, in addition to medications, there are plenty of other tools that can certainly be, you know, tried first line or be very, very helpful adjuncts to medication management. And that's going to include things like exercise, social and peer support. And that could be from spouse or friends, you know, helping around the home, helping make meals. Or again, it could be things like the spouse or even doulas or night nurses who can help protect that mom's sleep schedule because sleep is so important after, after birth and during the postpartum period. Now, other things like mom classes or support groups can be helpful, but I want to emphasize that if a patient is having postpartum mood disorders, getting them in with a specific postpartum mood disorder support group is going to be super helpful because sometimes, you know, they join the mom groups and they hear all the other parents saying, oh, things are going great. And that can kind of compound the shame a little bit. So if you can recommend a specific postpartum depression group, that way you have a lot of benefit for the patient. Now, other things, parenting education classes can be helpful. And, you know, sometimes couple and family therapy can, can be helpful as well. Now, to wrap up this episode, I want to quickly review postpartum psychosis. 
It's a very rare condition. It occurs in roughly one to two of every 1,000 births. And this condition is defined as a disturbance in an individual's perception of reality during the postpartum period. And the psychosis can be manifested through a couple of following symptoms. It can be delusions, which again are fixed, false, idiosyncratic beliefs that are not culturally based. Hallucinations, which are these sensory experiences without any physical sensory stimulation. And this can be tactile hallucinations, visual, auditory, gustatory, and even olfactory sensations. Other common symptoms are really um, disorganized thoughts as well as disorganized behaviors. Now there's a couple risk factors for postpartum psychosis. And this includes either a personal or family history of postpartum psychosis a history of bipolar disorder, of major depressive disorder with psychotic features in the past, a history of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. And there is a subset of women who experience isolated postpartum psychosis that doesn't progress to mood or psychotic episodes outside of the postpartum time period. And roughly 50% of women who experience postpartum psychosis have no prior psychiatric history of psychosis. Now, other things that can increase the risk for postpartum psychosis is if it's a patient's first pregnancy. For whatever reason, we seem to see higher rates during a initial pregnancy versus subsequent. Another risk factor is if a patient was on medications to help with mood and those were stopped for pregnancy. There is some mixed data that says that sleep deprivation may play a role in triggering postpartum psychosis, but there's not enough to say definitively yet. Now that we've talked about the risk factors, let's talk a little bit about the signs and symptoms of postpartum psychosis. So usually the first indication of postpartum psychosis is persistent severe insomnia. And this isn't insomnia that's related to, you know, just caring for a newborn. It is more significant and severe, and it's it's outside of those that normal kind of unfortunately normal insomnia that comes with that other symptoms of course are those hallucinations and delusions we talked about earlier and they're usually present and often associated with that disorganized thought and bizarre behavior now sometimes these hallucinations can be what are called command auditory hallucinations which is this voice inside the head instructing the parent to harm the baby or themselves and when these command hallucinations are present the individual or the patient requires definitely a higher level of care and likely hospitalization now, symptoms of, of postpartum psychosis can also include, you know, manic symptoms or d- depressed mood or both. And sometimes they can have rapid mood changes, irritability, and psychomotor agitation. The delusions in postpartum psychosis typically do involve the baby, but they're less bizarre than are what's typically seen with schizophrenia. So schizophrenic patients, they may say that their baby was ill-fated or that their baby's the devil or that somebody might, you know, want to take their baby away. Now, it's important to note that a patient's mental status may fluctuate between periods of confusion or perplexity and then have this intermittent clearing or clarity of symptoms. Homicidal behavior is rare in postpartum psychosis. Approximately a third of women hospitalized for postpartum psychosis experience delusions about their infants, and about 9% of those have thoughts of harming their infants. Approximately 4% of women with postpartum psychosis have been found to commit infanticide. So how do we screen for postpartum psychosis? Like peripartum and postpartum mood disorders, screening involves ruling out other causes of the symptoms. So we're going to look for other causes of psychosis, including things like substance abuse, infectious diseases like mastitis, endometritis, cellulitis. We're going to look for things that would cause metabolic encephalopathy, delirium, like 
from eclampsia or autoimmune conditions or even drug-induced psychosis. We're going to look for endocrine dysfunction. Again, that can be thyroid or even parathyroid diseases. And of course, we're going to make sure that we're looking for central nervous system events like strokes, tumors, or traumas. The DSM does not classify postpartum psychosis as a distinct diagnostic entity. Instead, patients with postpartum psychosis are assigned a diagnosis based on their primary mental disorder with this addition specifier of peripotum onset. So for example, you know, a patient may be diagnosed with major depressive disorder with psychotic features with peripartum onset or bipolar disorder, current episode with manic mania with psychotic features with peripartum onset etc, etc. When it comes to treating postpartum psychosis, the very first priority in all cases is that we are going to ensure the safety of the individual and their children, and this unfortunately typically involves hospitalizing these patients. The preferred pharmacological treatment for individuals with postpartum psychosis who do not have an established psychiatric history are typically started on antipsychotic and lithium, and the rationale behind this is that Individuals with postpartum psychosis have a high likelihood of subsequent diagnosis with bipolar disorder. Now, prior to beginning lithium, there needs to be screening for renal diseases, thyroid dysfunction, and obtaining an EKG with any patients with coronary risk factors. So, you know, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, smoking, things like that. The beginning dose of lithium is 300 milligrams on the first day, then 300 milligrams twice a day beginning day two. Serum lithium levels are taken five days after any medication adjustment, and of course, the dose is adjusted accordingly. When choosing an antipsychotic for these patients, we're generally going to prefer a second generation over a first generation, and this is based on lower rates of those extrapyramidal symptoms and tardive dyskinesia. As a reminder, second generation antipsychotics include things like Seroquel, Zyprexia, Risperdal, and Abilify. Treatment with second generation antipsychotics is often associated with hyperglycemia, hyperlipidemia, and weight gain. So we're going to want to keep an eye on these things by getting recurrent blood work and monitoring weight. If a patient has a history of major depressive disorder and they present with psychosis, but they're not on any antidepressants, then the preferred treatment is going to be with lithium, an antipsychotic, and an antidepressant. And in these cases, we're going to avoid beginning all three medications at once. We're going to start with that lithium and antipsychotic, monitor for that for about a week, and then at that time, if the symptoms aren't adequately treated, we're going to add an SSRI, as discussed previously. The treatment with the antipsychotic is continued for a minimum of three to six months, and then that lithium monotherapy is going to be continued for up to a year in most cases. While all psychotropic medications taken by the mother are transferred into the breast milk and therefore passed on to the nursing infant, exposure to antipsychotic and antidepressant medications in breast milk appears to be low and clinically insignificant. However, there's no clear consensus on the safety of lithium in breastfeeding females. Well, that wraps it up for me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on peripartum and postpartum mood disorders. I hope that by learning more about these conditions, you, the listener, can help end the stigma that surrounds peripartum mood disorders. Tune in next time where I'll be sitting down with PA, licensed marriage and family therapist, and author Peck Enman to discuss all things peripartum mood disorders and her book, Beyond the Blues, Understanding and Treating Perinatal and Postpartum Depression and Anxiety. 
As always, you can find all of the resources for this episode in the show notes, as well as links to our episodes on APOG's website, www.paobgyn.org. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere podcasts are found. You can also follow APOG on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at APAOG to stay up to date on all the cool things that we're working on. And lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a difference in our visibility, and it would mean the world to me. Well, as always, that's the end of my pandering. Until next time, stay safe, tell someone you love them, and bring a little kindness into the world. Goodbye. Goodbye.